Good day, everyone. This is Dave Rhymes, and you're listening to Sound Bites, where sound theology and sound advice meets everyday life. What does the Bible say about itself? Psalm 119 challenges what we truly believe about God's Word and how we respond to it. In this soundbite, I use the final two stanzas as a review of the key truths found throughout this psalm. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use the last two sections in Psalm 119 to serve as a review of the entire psalm so that we can firm these teachings up into our hearts, into our minds, and also see how this passage allows us to see how we can move forward, not just as individual Christians, but as a church as a whole. So Larkin has already read our text this morning. I appreciate that. So we're just going to jump right into this. If you've come in late, we're in the book of Psalms, chapter 119, beginning in verse 161. Uh, Just by way of reminder, and and I hope you remember this from the past three months, is that the entire Psalm of 119 is all about God's Word and our response to God's Word, if you kind of want to put it in a nutshell. And so it's a beautiful Psalm. It's a challenging Psalm. But I encourage you to let this be a Psalm that you consistently revisit along your faith journey. You will be glad that you did. So this morning I want to show you how this text reminds us of some of the major themes in Psalm 119. Now it's not going to cover everything we've looked at in Psalm 119, but it does kind of cover some of those primary foundational themes that this Psalm presents. And for starters, this text highlights something that has been repeated over and over again in Psalm 119, and that is God's word is true. Now, you know that we live in a world, especially here in the U.S., where the existence of objective truth is being challenged and denied every day. So if you'll just allow me for a moment to pause and do a little bit of defining here. By nature... For something to be true, it must be true objectively so. That's what makes it true. It has to be true by some other standard outside of ourselves in order for it to be true. And if it is objectively true, then it is true for you, it's true for me, it's true for everyone. But the problem that many people have today with objective truth is that it equally binds us to the same standard. And once you are bound to the same standard, some people just go, you know what, I'd rather not be. I I kind of like to be free to to think and establish a truth for myself. I need my own version of truth. I need a version of truth that is completely subjective. In other words, it's dependent on me, how I think, how I feel. What the Bible says about itself, and here in Psalm 119, it is speaking about itself is that it is the objective truth given to mankind by God. One of the ways we see this is in verse 163, when the psalmist makes it clear that both truth and falsehood exist. One of the ways that we know the truth is out there is that there is something opposing that, a falsehood that helps us clearly see what the truth is. See, David knows that not everything can be truth. 
And he doesn't say, I love your truth, God, more than any other truth. Or, God, of all the truths out there, yours is my favorite. You know, if you asked me if I had a favorite flavor of ice cream, I could tell you. It is chocolate peanut butter from Haagen-Dazs. It is absolutely, yeah, someone's like, mmm, yeah, right? It's my favorite. I love it, hands down. But you know what? I like a lot of ice cream flavors. There are a lot of delicious, yummy flavors of ice cream out there, but I do have a favorite. However, that's not what David is trying to convey here in this psalm. It's not like God's word somehow just nudges out other equally valid truths that are, you know, equally delicious, so to speak, right? Keeping the ice cream metaphor. That's not what he's getting at. I mean, look at what he says here in this psalm. He actually uses the word hate to describe how he feels towards any other truth claim that isn't God's. In fact, he repeats that sentiment using a similar word, abhor to really add some extra emphasis. The word that David uses here in the ancient Hebrew for hate is the same word that God uses to express his feelings towards things like idol worship, pride, empty, meaningless worship, and even those who practice such things. It doesn't sound very tolerant, of David, but it shouldn't be. I know he's speaking poetically here because this is a song, but I think he's right to use such strong language, to even borrow the very language that God uses to describe his feelings towards these things. God's word is so absolutely and objectively true that when it is believed, it becomes the object of our love and affection. Now, not our worship. We've talked about that before. We don't worship the Bible, but we do love it. That's what David says as he follows up, is I hate and abhor falsehood. I love your law because it is something worth loving. Well, why would David love the law of God? Well, simply put, we love the truth, don't we? Don't we prefer the truth? I mean, how many of you here are just... You're itching for someone to lie to you later this week. Anybody? Anybody looking for a little deception? Maybe you're hoping the insurance company will scam you. Yes, please. No, of course not. That would be crazy. We want the truth. We expect the truth. We even demand the truth because the truth is so much better. The truth is worthy of our love. Moms and dads, don't you love it when your kids tell you the truth? Husbands, wives, isn't your relationship all the more stronger when it's built on the foundation of truth? If you are a supervisor, a manager, maybe you're the boss at your work, doesn't it make those sticky situations go a whole lot smoother when your workers are just honest? Of course it does. And just the opposite is true. Parents, I don't need a show of hands this morning But how many of you have sat on the corner of your bed and just wept over the lies your children have told you? Husbands, wives, has your heart been crushed because of secrets that were kept? For those of you that supervise workers, 
Have you ever been just so frustrated because you had to let a good worker go because of one little fixable problem that they just couldn't own up to? Why do we react that way? For the same reason David does. We hate and abhor falsehood. We just don't want it in our lives. And God's word is truth. Love it. Embrace it. Believe it. Because the alternative will leave you heartbroken, frustrated, and empty in the end. Now, I know some of you may struggle with the idea of objective truth, especially if it comes from the Bible. I think part of the reason why that is, is that the subjectivity of truth in our culture today has robbed truth of almost all of its value. Truth has become cheap. Truth is dime a dozen. I got my truth, you got your truth. And if my truth is as equally valid as your truth, then none of those truths are worth anything. Because we've so saturated and watered down truth till it just doesn't mean anything anymore. Is that what we want to build our lives on? Cheap truth that ultimately cannot be sustained beyond my own will to sustain it? I mean, hear me out. You can't live out a cheap truth. It is going to break down and fail at some point. Life is going to happen. The floor is going to give way. And where is your truth then? You're out shopping for another truth that eventually will also fail. What you and I need is a truth of surpassing worth. And that's exactly what we find in God's word because God's word is a treasure. Look at what David says in verse 162. He says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, like someone who just discovered a treasure. I've often fantasized what it would be like to, to find like a buried treasure, right? When you're a kid, you see movies, pirate movies, things like that, and there's buried treasure, X marks the spot. I've always thought how much fun that would be, and I've never found buried treasure, okay? But probably the closest I ever came to discovering something that I thought was valuable uh, probably was back in 1990 or early 1991. I was browsing through a comic book store in the Hammond Square Mall, and I ran across a first issue Star Wars comic book. And some of you are like, big whoop, but the nerds are like, amen, right? And it was just there in the box. And if you know comic book stores, they don't put anything valuable in those boxes that line the tables, right? But I was a fan. I was excited. I picked it up and I tried to be all nonchalant, you know, like hey, no big deal. And I brought it up to the guy running the place to get a price. And he took it, took one disinterested look at it, flopped it back on the counter and said, you can have it for three bucks. And I was like, yes, because for me, that was something as a fan that I wanted to have, but it wasn't valuable to anyone else. And I kind of apathetically, you know, pulled out three bucks and paid the guy and walked out of there with my comic book grinning like an idiot because I was so excited about it. But here's the kicker. In May of 1991, author Timothy Zahn re released Heir to the Empire, the first Star Wars novel since 1978, the first Star Wars anything since 1983, and in doing so, completely revitalized a fandom that young people, believe it or not, had almost flatlined. And within a few months, my $3 comic peaked at $300. 
Yeah, now you're interested. Star Wars, whatever, $300 comic, yes. Now it was exciting. I was excited all over again. You know, don't we love stories like that? I mean, someone's going to a garage sale, an estate sale. They find something. They know what it is. I mean, they know the value, and it's got like a 50-cent sticker on it. And they pick it up, and they bring it home, and it's got great monetary value. Or maybe it's great sentimental value. It's a treasure to us. But God's word is not just a treasure to us. That's not what David is getting at. David wants us to see that God's word is not just a treasure to him, but for everyone who discovers it. And unlike my comic book, which has decreased in value, sadly enough, the treasure of God's word never loses its value. In fact, for those who possess it, the value only increases. That's why David is so full of joy. He says, I rejoice at your word. You know, I actually stopped being excited about that comic book years ago. I mean, I mean, it makes for a great story, doesn't it? But it just doesn't hold the same excitement as that day there in the comic book store when I initially discovered it. That, that, that's all worn away. But it's not so with the word of God. Because this is no ordinary treasure, because this is no ordinary truth. And every time we sit together and we open up this book to, to read it, to study it, whether we're in worship or Bible studies, or we're gathered with our families in the home, we are gazing upon a great and invaluable treasure. And it should fill us with joy. So what do we find when we crack open this treasure. What, what's the treasure inside the treasure? It's the salvation of God. David says in verse 166 that he hopes for God's salvation. He says in verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord. Well, where does David learn about God's salvation? I mean, is he just making this up as he goes along? No. David has been in God's word. He's opened up that treasure. And what has he discovered? That there is a God who saves. In Psalm 119, David talks about salvation often, sometimes very directly, like in verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Sometimes he speaks of it in terms of giving life like in verse 159, which we went over just a couple of weeks ago. He says, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. This contains the word of God, which explains and offers salvation to us. That's the treasure. Life instead of death. Grace instead of wrath. God, instead of the misery of ourselves, is this a treasure? You bet it is. Numerous times we see the psalm speak of, God, of, the, of this, board, this word in this way. But not only is it a treasure, the word of God is also trustworthy. The faithfulness of God has been proclaimed in this sermon series over and over again. In fact, I encourage you, go back and look at it. You can watch all the sermons online, on Facebook, on YouTube. 
But you'll notice that that has been a theme throughout this sermon series is the faithfulness of God. And, and in this particular passage here, there's a couple of ways worth paying attention to that that trustworthiness, that faithfulness is highlighted. First, in verse 161, it shows us that God can be trusted during times of persecution. And if we can't trust God in times of persecution, I don't know when we can. Now, I know we've all seen what's been happening recently in Afghanistan. My heart breaks for the citizens, especially the Christians. And I know we don't know all that is going on with the believers in Afghanistan, but what we do know is awful. Christians are being targeted. Their homes are being raided, Bibles confiscated, and it's only going to be a matter of time, most likely, before Christians have to give their lives for no other reason than following Jesus Christ. This is real persecution. I can't even begin to put myself in their shoes, and neither can you. We are so far removed from anything remotely this evil or violent being done to us. So when we talk about persecution, let's not play games with words because there are people that are truly suffering and even giving their lives over for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ. You have to ask yourselves, what do our brothers and sisters do in the face of such relentless hate and evil? I pray they do what David did. He stood in awe of God's word. Why? Because it was trustworthy. Elsewhere in this psalm, verses 81 through 88, David cries out to God in his persecution and declares his faithfulness to God's word because God has been faithful to him. You and I may never face the kind of persecution that David spoke of or even what's happening right now in Afghanistan and many other places around the world. But we do face hardships of various kinds. And in these, God and his word are trustworthy. When hurricanes like Ida devastate and destroy homes and lives, God's word is still trustworthy. This truth that we have is so true that persecution and calamity cannot overcome it. Life turned upside down doesn't negate it. That's why you can trust it. If it ever faltered any, might as well just throw it out. But that's not what God's Word does. You want to know what the weak link is in cheap truth? Hardship. Always hardship. Cheap truth falls apart when your world does. But that's not the way it is with God's Word. Never this. This you can trust. It's the way that God's word illuminates our path in front of us is how it guides us in peace during tumultuous times. God, who is forever faithful, teaches us his true word. That's why David in verse 65 speaks about those who love God's word as having peace along the journey of life. This is a true treasure that you and I can lean into. And the Apostle Paul knew the experience of persecution all too well, didn't he? On both sides, first as the persecutor and then as the persecuted. And listen to what he said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, Paul is either nuts to talk like that or he knows a thing or two about the trustworthiness of God and his word. And I'm convinced it's the latter. If you and I can believe and can affirm that God's word is true, that it is a treasure, and that it is trustworthy, then what I'm about to say is going to make perfect sense. If God's word is these three things, and it is, then God's word is necessary. Thanks for listening. We pray this clip has been helpful and invite you to connect with more content from First Baptist on our website at fbcbr.com or through our social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram, username at fbcbr. Until next time, let us keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.